0: Welcome to the CEFI podcast, sharing with you knowledge from some of Europe's leading engineering educators. Today's guest is Calvin Rands, who's taken blended learning and media production to the next level. He guides us on how, post-pandemic, we can transform our practice by flipping the classroom in the right way, while taking on the role of coach, experimenter, and storyteller.
1: Welcome to the European Engineering Educators podcast by Cefi, the European Society for Engineering Education. Our mission is to develop and improve engineering education and strengthen its image in society. So Neil, I've tried adopting a sort of semi-flipped classroom approach in some of my modules, mainly where I felt it was more beneficial for students to spend time on activities within the sort of class time or the scheduled time. So for example, in computer labs. Yeah, yeah. I can't say I've got loads of engagement, and I've sort of been known to give up halfway through <laughs> the term. But also, I've had complaints from students who say that I'm not, I'm not teaching, and um, mm. they're paying, and I'm not teaching them. And to be honest, I can sometimes empathise with this. Is when I've done sort of professional development online, I've also struggled with engaging before the actual taught session. So I guess I'm looking forward to learning about how I can change my approach to this. What's your experience?
0: Well, I think, I mean, I really enjoy media creation part of engineering education and blended learning. And, you know, many hundreds of hours of online materials and instruction have been delivered by, I think, many of us, particularly during the pandemic. Mm. And in some respects, even this podcast has come out of that, those skills that we got then. But, but despite of all, all of that, I think that blended learning does alter the educational experience. And I think some of the eff- efficiencies that it delivers are not necessarily translated into learning gains for students.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, and I think it's expensive to do well. I mean, I know Calvin has taken this to another level with his recording suites and course designs. So I'm excited today to hear about him share his experiences.
1: Welcome, Calvin. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Natalie. It's been uh, quite a week looking forward to uh being able to talk to everyone in this uh, unique format of disseminating information to the Cephi community.
1: So Calvin Ranz is an associate professor at the Faculty of Aerospace Engineering at TU Delft, where he manages two professional recording studios, where he develops and supports educators in making novel blended learning experiences for students. He refers to himself as an edutainer, claiming that if learning isn't fun, you're doing it wrong. And he's also voted Teacher of the Year 2019 by the Dutch National Students Association. Carmen, has this always been an interest of yours? At what point did you start to become involved in sort of engineering education?
2: Well, I've always been interested in trying to help people understand new information. So actually these sort of skills came out of my time in research and actually enjoying the process of uh, writing journal papers. Some people mm-hmm. might think I'm a little bit Uh, insane for enjoying that process, (laughs) or uh, making conference presentations and trying to figure out how to distill complex things into easy, digestible things. Uh, So I always was really interested in that. And as many things happen, I I fell into a teaching role, having to take the place of uh, my supervising professor during my PhD, doing a sabbatical uh, and running his courses from him. And things just grew from there.
0: So, Calvin, you're from Delft University of Technology, Technische Universiteit Delft, and it was founded in 1842 and is the oldest and largest public technical university in the Netherlands. It's one of the top ten engineering and technology universities in the world. And it states that its common mission is impact for a better society. So, Calvin, um, you're from the Faculty of Aerospace Engineering, which is one of the largest departments in the world. Can you tell us more about engineering education at t u Delft
2: at tU delft uh, I'm very lucky to be in this institution because they're forward thinking with like online education, open education, and the amount of support and resources they provide uh, yeah. in that really helps people who are interested to experiment and I think that's that's a key thing you know when I got into blended mm-hmm. learning. You know, I had some ideas and usually people have ideas and it it ends when you see how much work is involved yeah. uh and how yeah. much you have to retrain yourself. Yeah. And luckily here um you know even I started before online was quite well established but I had a lot of people here to sort of bounce ideas and support me and uh keep me going. So
0: Okay, so before we uh talk about your work in this area, could you just give the listeners who perhaps are not quite as familiar with the the idea of blended learning and what, what it means and what it involves?
2: I think the key aspect of blended learning is the word blended. Uh, yeah. it's, it's very important to be in the title. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's important to know that, especially coming out of the situation we've come out recently with COVID, mm. where there was a lot of emergency online education, where all the education was online.
1: Yeah.
2: So blended education isn't online education. It's taking elements of online education and elements of an on-campus education and setting them up in a way that they complement each other. And And that's important to the success of blended learning, or sometimes people call it the flipped classroom, because a lot of people view it as I take my lecturing from the classroom and move it to the online environment. Yeah. And if that's not done in a way that ties that well with what's done with your sort of new classroom interaction opportunities, it becomes sort of a online course, and that we all know has got some challenges in terms of its success rate with students.
1: So, can you tell us like a bit about what this looks like? I mean, if I was a student about to enroll on one of your courses, what would what would I expect?
2: So, for a lot of my courses. I require about a half hour to an hour's worth of preparation for a lecture. In that half hour, they might watch one or two videos. Um, They might have to do a small reading of a textbook section. And the purpose of that is to introduce them to new content. So that's sort of the the passive monologue that you would normally give in a classroom. Mm -hmm. I automate that in terms of videos and readings. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Then I give them a small quiz or something to give them feedback on how did they digest what they just read. And it's not like an extensive quiz. It's just a few questions to help trigger them. Did they really understand what they saw or they read? Mm -hmm. And then I give them a primer for what we're going to be doing in class. So it might be, here's a problem we're going to solve in class, to give them time to think about the question and how they would apply what they've learned before they see me solve it. Then when they come to class, if they've done the prep, they're prepared to engage, ask questions, and participate in that. And because you're not worried about having time to lecture the next thing because of the automation process, Mm -hmm. you can kind of respond to misconceptions. So actually, a lot of my lecturing is asking questions, identifying students that don't have the right concept, and exploring why they misunderstood it. So it's a lot of repair activity rather than teaching activity in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And then the last element is I have to reward them for doing the preparation work. So I leave time and space at the end of my lecture that students can work on their um, homework problems or practice problems. Uh, well, I'm there and teaching assistants are there to to help them if they have additional questions. Mm-hmm. So I've implemented it in a way that I'm very clear and I communicate this to the students that I'm not asking them to do additional work. I'm just reshuffling. That's the whole flipped aspect, reshuffling where they're doing certain activities.
1: You were doing this before COVID um, as opposed to, I guess it's become more widespread during the COVID pandemic, this sort of approach, but has anything changed from what you were originally doing since the pandemic?
2: Yeah, well, things have naturally evolved because when I Mm -hmm. first started playing with uh, Flipped Classroom, I made the classic mistake of, okay, I take my lecture uh, concepts and notes, break it down into smaller chunks, make a video of that and put it online. And that is a lot of work. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: And and you get through all that work and then you realize wait a second what am I going to do in the lecture now? <laughs> yeah. And and my first dives into <laughs> blended learning, I, that's all I did is I moved the lecturing to outside of the classroom and didn't really connect with what I wanted to do in the classroom. Mm. But that experience made me think that actually the design of what you do in the classroom needs to come first. You have to motivate, what do you want to enable yourself to do with your students in your classroom? What is that classroom experience you want? And then the blended portion is, what can I move to the uh, uh, online space to make room for that? And I think that's really important for getting buy-in from students as well, because if that classroom experience isn't... Significantly more valuable than traditional lecturing, then they're annoyed at the additional what they perceive as additional work they need to do outside of the class.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Calvin, you were talking about shifting there from teaching uh, activities in the classroom to a repair activities, and you know, blended learning has become re- reshuffling. You said of the materials, and um, what? obstacles have you faced in trying to change those behaviors and perhaps you could tell us about them
2: well I would say actually the the first challenge is not student buy-in but it's actually buy-in yourself
0: right um, and that's not <laughs> yeah.
2: that's not an insignificant point because it's a new style of teaching and if you're not confident with it uh, and what you want to get out of it, the students are going to see that yeah. So I always recommend for teachers wanting to to dabble in it, you have to start with an experiment, you know, flip one lecture, play around with it, learn what works, what doesn't, and how it fits with you. So that's always the first step is you have to get that buy in from yourself. But I think the second step uh, with relation to student buy in is we need to be more communicative about the learning process. Uh, okay. yeah. we, we need to inform students why we design courses the way that we do. So, in fact, I actually start one of my first lectures of my first year courses. I put the constructive alignment triangle up and show mm-hmm. students, you know, the connection between learning objectives, classroom activities, and yeah. assessment, and the trap of studying for the test, where students look at, you know, classroom activities and assessment and think those are the only two things that are linked and forget about that the assessment is a measure of the learning objectives. Yeah. So I explain to them the, the, the benefits they get out of this and, and what they are getting in return uh, for me flipping the classroom. And for them, it's, it's actually a valuable thing. It's much more contact time where they can ask questions. I often make the, the comparison of a teacher as being more of a coach. Mm. And and the students are like the players on a team. They've decided to join this team. Uh, the team adds value, but hopefully the coach adds value. I give advice. I give feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's constantly reminding them there that this isn't just a, a train that they get on and they sit on this train for three years and they end up with a degree in the end. Do you
1: think students feel then like you're saying that this is sort of part of a a team, so you're all part of a team. Do you think students feel like then they have input into how it can change? So how maybe the blended learning approach can be changed or tweaked slightly to better enable their learning?
2: I make sure that I am open to feedback as, uh, you've got to mirror what you want from your students. So if I'm giving them feedback and I want them to be open to it, I have to be able to also take the feedback. Mm-hmm. So I actually do that throughout my course. I'll give moments where I will give anonymous polls or even at, at the front of the class make, put a box. Uh, I like to do the start, stop, go sort of survey. So mm-hmm. a box of tell me something I should start doing that I'm not doing already tell me something I should stop doing that I'm doing, tell me something I should uh, keep doing. And I do that early enough in a course where students feel that and can see that I respond to their feedback. And I will actually take all of that feedback, even put on my learning management system. These are all the comments I got. I respond Mm -hmm. to each of them. Sometimes it's enlightening as a teacher to sort of see that they would like you to stop doing something and you realize that they just don't understand why you're doing it. Uh, and you can explain, you know, well, I, I'm actually going to keep doing this because I feel it's important for this and this reason. Mm-hmm. And I think having that open dialogue and open conversation is is very, very key.
1: Sure. So I, the second thing you mentioned, apart from it being a team, was that you're the coach. And I'm then I'm just wondering about how you found that in terms of, you know, changing behavior. Is, has that been difficult? What was the transition, I guess, from that kind of giving an hour lecture compared to taking this more coaching approach?
2: Well, I, I had the benefit of when I started playing around with this, I did it in the bachelor in early courses. And the reason why I say that's important is I don't feel that um, the content is my expertise because most of us who have an engineering degree could teach any course in first year bachelors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a personal connection to the content,
1: right? Uh, yeah. And I
2: think that makes a big difference. Like some teachers, you really see, uh, in in properly doing the uh, blended learning or, or or transforming that learning experience, it's taking the perspective that the the content is kind of just the context of the course. Mm-hmm. The learning experience is much more. And I hate the term soft skills, but soft skills works into there. Mm-hmm. Um, the critical reflection, the higher order learning objectives on the Bloom's taxonomy, those are all kind of, they require that coaching role. It requires them to take content and try and do something with it. Uh, so it's easier to remove that content. And, and why I say a coach is I'm there to elevate the players make them better. I'm not mm-hmm. there to go on the ice. I, I, I use ice hockey. Sorry, I'm yeah, Canadian. Sure. <laughs> uh, I'm not there to go on the ice and, and, and skate around and, and show them exactly how to do it. I'm, I'm there to observe what they're doing and help guide them. Mm-hmm.
0: You advocate turning students into learning investigators in a project I've seen that you've done on a flight data recorder um, in aerospace. Which uh, has yielded many uh, useful lessons. Could you tell us a bit more about this?
2: Yeah. Well. Um. So my student flight data recorder is a a project uh, that. Uh, yeah. It has the aerospace theme, yeah. but it also connects a little bit to my research. I actually do research in terms into aircraft failures and oh, wow. teach accident investigation uh, concepts and stuff uh, in our master's program. Yeah. But I brought this into the bachelor's. For a number of reasons. The first one is I really realized that a lot of students are terrified of failure. And that failure is an extremely dirty word to a lot of students because <clears> if <throat> they hear the term failure, they yeah. feel that they are a failure. Yeah. Uh, so I've made it a, a mission of mine within my teaching within the bachelor's to remind students that failure is a necessary part of the learning process, and that experiencing a failure doesn't mean you're a failure. Experiencing a failure just means you, you did not meet an intended goal. Yeah, And I actually show, you know, it's an aerospace uh, uh, course, so the first day of class I show a video of um, SpaceX, right. uh, a compilation of all of the rocket failures that they <laughs> experienced developing this rocket. Yeah. And most of the students know about SpaceX, so I show this huge video, there's, there's dozens of accidents, and ask them, is the company a failure? Uh, to, to confront that with that. So the, the Flight Data Recorder was a, a project was related to this, that failure will occur, and that when it does occur, don't blame yourself. <laughs> right. Don't blame the teacher, don't blame yeah. anyone else, just like in an aircraft accident investigation. If you experience a failure, you need to investigate it for the purposes of preventing that from ever happening again. And, uh, I lectured to them about the flight, uh, air safety investigation process where we do this in, and the yeah. flight data recorder is a symbol of that, you know, that is box. a, yeah, yeah, the black box yeah. that's commonly known of is something that is there to collect data. To be used to prevent future accidents and you can't actually use what's on that flight data recorder to blame anyone or to sue anyone it's it's a protected device (laughs) right uh so i made a self-reflection journal for the students that i call the student flight data recorder cool that they can write down their weekly reflections it has a bunch of exercises in it but just like the black box the flight data recorder it's protected so it's not an assignment. I don't look at it as a professor. It's only there for their own investigatory purposes.
0: How do you motivate students to do this reflection when it's not part of
2: the, the graded assignment? Part of it is I capture the students when they're coming in. Yeah. So I do this flight data recorder, student flight data recorder, with our first-year students. Yeah, And don't underestimate how truly motivated students are when they first come. Yeah. we we were very effective at killing their motivation after the first <laughs> exam period uh, but when they first come in they're super motivated yeah uh, and I also realize that they look up to and emulate their professors hmm. so the thing that I do in in collaboration with this or in parallel is I will reflect on my own teaching you know I will yeah. come and tell students you know on, on a lecture, if it's the beginning of the lecture, I actually had one this morning, 8.30 in the morning, uh, I had a terribly bad weekend. And I started off the lecture by giving a check in with the students and sort of saying, you know, this is on the back of my mind. I'm not on my my a game today. Just just be aware, just be open and honest. Yeah. Um, And I uh, say that I, I will do my best to not let it affect my teaching. I open up feedback in terms of the stop, start, stop, go. And I will read some of the comments aloud in a lecture and respond to them and reflect on them. So I have to mirror that process that I want them to, to follow. Mm-hmm. I also get student mentors involved. So the lucky thing for the first year is uh, for the first, uh, first month of their studies, they have weekly meetings with their student mentor getting advice. And I get a lot of buy-in from the student mentors in the use of it. They find it as a useful journal and I find actually having students, peers, tell students the use of the journal is much more effective than a professor telling, mm. right? Because then there's no vested interest from that peer in terms of needing it or assessing it or, or whatever. One of the aspects
0: of the COVID pandemic was that we relied much more heavily on blended learning And you draw an analogy between online learning and an astronaut's mission to Mars. I mean, this sounds like a fun idea of students as astronauts. So could you tell us a bit more about that?
2: So indeed, uh, I was doing the fully online during COVID, like all of us. And this actually links to the authenticity, because going into it, we were all concerned of how unprepared (laughs) we were to go fully (laughs) online. So in the interest of being authentic, I was aware that things were going to go wrong. Even though I was experienced with online teaching, I knew there was going to be technical problems. There was all going to be all kinds of glitches. And yeah. this would be potentially seen as negative from the students. Hmm. So I took this, and also problems from my side, but also problems from their side. And so to prevent that from making myself negative and also making the students negative... I decided to play on this idea of things going horribly wrong, but trying to look forward at how can we get past this. Yeah. And this caused me to sort of think about, you know, a manned mission to Mars. It's <laughs> something we talk about in aerospace all the time. But in yeah. a manned mission to Mars, you have a crew on a spacecraft that are in extreme isolation. They don't yeah. get to contact the outside world. They're communicating with mission control remotely. Mm. They're only getting video messages from home with updates. Yeah. And if they experience a technical problem on their spacecraft when going to Mars, you know, yes, they can get upset, but that doesn't help anything. You know, if they're <laughs> yeah. on this mission mm. and a problem encounters, you have to be much more solution oriented. Right. You know, how can we fix this? How can we get past this? Mm. So I took this whole concept and applied it to my co- course. And actually, in the first class, I said, look, you know, we're all, on, we're all confined in this capsule. We don't get to see each other. <laughs> yeah, We're all on a journey. We all know where we want to get to. Mm. Uh, we're going to encounter problems. We can talk about the problems, but let's talk about them in solution-oriented ways and let's be understanding of them. And then I also played with the concept. I actually had the teaching assistants make small videos um, talking about campus life and yeah. things that these students were missing by not mm-hmm. being on campus, just like those sort of video messages from family at home. Oh, wow. And it, it became just kind of a way to re-change the perspective of this journey in isolation that everyone saw as negative and relate it to something that actually a lot of our students aspire to maybe do one day. Maybe COVID has changed their mind and they don't want the isolation anymore. <laughs> Do you
0: think there's an increasing need to teach in this edutainment way? I think
2: what we need to take coming out of COVID is the awareness of the other factors that affect the learning process. Yeah. You know, the, the influence of the environment someone is within when they're studying, the ability to interact and discuss with other people. But also, the sort of time perception was one of the key things that a lot of times the students yeah. they were crawling out of bed and just <laughs> flipping open their laptop that sort of separation between you know eating breakfast and going and starting your day yeah that was gone, and mm. that happens with astronauts and stuff as well they They literally create routines and processes and checklists for astronauts so that they keep on on track with things and Building in that structure and scaffolding around learning activities, so you know with the lecture at the end of their lecture prep it's a little checklist of did they do things and it would record what time and then I could reflect with students that you know I saw that everyone did the lecture prep very last minute so are you still using this students as
0: astronauts analogy
2: um, now we're out of covid i I don't use the full analogy, but I use elements of it um, because I actually, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is uh, one of the activities that came out of this process was the idea of making story-based problems for the students to work on. Um, And this was me using a strategy I used to use for myself as a student, you know, when I was solving problems and uh, they were very boring, like how much stress is in the handle of a shovel when there's a kilogram of dirt on it? Or <laughs> right. it, it always seemed like it was, we were solving really stupid problems. Uh, and so I used to dream these elaborate backstories to why this particular problem needed to be solved, like sort of James Bond-ish type of, you know, <laughs> yeah. this needs to be solved right now to save the world. And I took that mission to Mars theme and created uh, a character called the, the, the space engineer. Right and actually made animated backstories to <laughs> specific problems i solve in class right i still use those and it it took a lot of work it was a therapy thing for me i actually did it more for myself during covid just to 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 do something but that gets so much engagement from students so actually one of the problems was about a design of a bridge with limited materials i used to solve it in class all the time but now i have a backstory of this uh, landing on on uh, the moon and nasa made some mistake and the unmanned landers are on one side of a canyon you're on the other you have a limited amount of material how can we design the bridge nasa says this is the design they want but you don't think that uh that's the optimal solution so you want to try and do better yeah and i I solve the problem in class and talk about it. And for a week afterwards, I have students still coming to me. You know, I've been looking at this problem more. What if I did this? What if I do that? Because they get so uh, invested in that story. Like they see how much effort you put into it and how much fun you're trying to make it that they really get engaged.
0: Calvin, thanks for joining us today. Uh, to finish, What advice could you give the listeners and us to better adopt your approach um, in their own practice, this coaching, not teaching, edutaining, astronauts, not students mindset?
2: So the biggest piece of advice I could give is disconnect from this feeling that you have to convey all of this content. Yeah. And I know that seems very strange in a, it in a, as a teacher, but mm. think about how many people pass a course that is just all content-driven monologue lectures. They pass the exam, yeah, and then they don't retain anything. Mm. So people are going to lose content. So it's you have to divorce yourself from that and try and make it a, an interesting learning experience. I think the other piece of advice is. Experiment. Don't don't start huge. A a lot of people saw that uh, in during COVID. You know, I saw a lot of people record all these lectures, put it all online, and then they would come talk to me, and I'd give them some advice and be like, "Yeah, the way you've done it isn't optimal," but they put so much work into it. Yes, they don't want to let go. Right? It's like mentoring someone writing a thesis, and they give you a complete written draft before talking to you about structure and you want to throw out their entire structure, they, yeah. they don't want to throw out that written thesis. No. So start small so that you have time to incorporate feedback. And the last thing is a warning. <laughs> if you get into sort of this coaching role and being more authentic, you are going to be connecting more with the students as people. Yeah, That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be overloading to... Uh, Feel all of the struggles and pain that students are going through. So when I started doing this more, not just in COVID, but even now, I have students who feel comfortable to come and talk to me about they're struggling with this. They would like advice on this, and and they're not looking for handouts. They're not looking. They're they're honestly struggling through something and reaching out. Mm. And when you have five hundred students, that can quickly overwhelm you. For sure, you can have an empathy overload, but I, I find my own ways to cope with that. But I, I see it as a, a a positive side effect in the sense that you know, I'm I'm having that coaching connection with someone, Mm -hmm. and they are seeking help and advice when they need it. It's just sometimes disheartening to see the struggles that a lot of people go through.
0: Well, that's given us a lot to think about. Thanks, Calvin, for coming on today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. and i I must say that I applaud you for your own uh, experiments in blended learning because uh, I see this podcast as sort of a form of blended learning to actually make the engagement of the Cefi community at our annual conference that much more interactive and engaging. so uh, you you should pat yourselves on the back for uh, for that uh, that effort in this domain as well.
1: Thanks, Calvin. Thank you.
2: We'll take that compliment.
1: So, Neil, I remember that when we recorded um, this episode, I remember thinking that I sort of have tended to focus more on what the flipped content is when I'm sort of designing this kind of learning. Yeah. But I think from, from speaking to Calvin, I really sort of thought that when taking a sort of flipped classroom approach, I need to focus first on what I want to be able to achieve in the classroom and then work out how a blended approach will help facilitate that. So maybe yeah. f- reverse my way of thinking. <laughs> yeah. I think then, secondly, I was very... I sort of was put off blended or flipped approaches because I always see it as very technological and a bit cold and sterile. But I think Calvin really opened my eyes to how the approach can be used to help build better relationships with the students because you've got a bit more time in class and maybe leads to a more empathic way of teaching. What, What do you think?
0: Well, I think Calvin suggested several things. What's... Stood out to me was talking about being an edutainer mm-hmm. and and these James Bond example. <laughs> and some time ago I remember talking to someone about writing screenplays and they sort of recommended me this book um, called Twenty-Two Steps to Become a Master Storyteller by John Truby. And he covered lots of films and and basically talked about how you know all stories um, have, the, have the same same elements and and that got me thinking then that you know when we do our education training um we don't really cov- cover that kind mm. of aspect we talk yeah. about constructive alignment learning objective assessment all, mm-hmm. all of that all of that but actually i think the real spark can come from storytelling and uh, perhaps that's what's something that as engineers and educators need to take on board in a much greater way.
1: I look forward to seeing how you do that in your lecture.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll see.
1: <laughs> OK, until next time, take care. Bye.